0: Coming up on verse chorus verse fend, and dl we go back to our roots let's talk jazz, jazz. yes Episode 30 with me is Sven. Cool Cat Knutson. Sven, how are you doing tonight? I'm pretty cool. Yeah?
1: (laughs) Doing pretty well. How are you?
0: I'm good. I went from seeing you all the time to not seeing you for like four weeks. It's really weird. We're like strangers now. I know.
1: Had some shit going on.
0: Yeah, we're glad you're okay. It's just good to see you, man. It's good to be here with you. Ready to talk music.
1: Yeah, I'm excited for this.
0: So the podcast tonight, episode 30. We probably aren't going to do this on... In every rotation but it yeah. was probably around episode 10 or something every random while there'd be a little text from one of the other saying god when are we going to talk jazz i want to talk jazz <laughs> yeah and
1: it was a big part of both of our musical development huge yeah
0: huge we'll be doing this at least a couple times a season and what this is jazz is not best heard through albums so it doesn't really fit with the rest of our organization through the pot so we figured that what the best thing to do would be, each one of us would pick one jazz artist for that episode and kind of quote-unquote educate the other. Mm-hmm. I think Sven and I probably take a fairly decent amount of pride in the fact that I think we know a lot about a lot of jazz musicians. Yeah. But the cool thing about jazz is not very many people know everything about all jazz musicians. Right. So we're going to concentrate on one single musician, kind of teach the other, talk about it, have a bunch of, oh yeah, moments. Mm-hmm. And I can't believe we didn't think about this sooner because this is going to be freaking fun, oh, yeah. man.
1: Yeah. It was it was hard to pick too. Really hard. I, there, there's so many favorites. There's so many jazz musicians I want to talk about. The jazz world was kind of small, or is still yes. relatively small, so usually talking about one leads to another, and they played together, there's, yeah. Every
0: artist yeah. is gonna get talked about somewhere with every other artist, that kind of thing.
1: Right, yeah.
0: And it is, yeah. it's funny, it's it's a total rabbit hole, in five minutes of research, and i a sudden, oh my god, I should have done him.
1: Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, and you see who influenced who, and who played, and whose band, and who... Yeah, this is going to be a good one.
0: That's the pod tonight. That's what we're going to do for these. I basically straight up stole this setup from My Favorite Murder. Sorry, gals, you have an amazing podcast. (laughs) If you didn't have such a good podcast, people wouldn't steal from it. There's a lot of you don't really get to pick what you listen to now that we're doing all this podcast stuff. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize how much I needed to hear something not as modern until I started listening to jazz just a couple weeks ago. The first time I actually put on a jazz song, this thing just hit me in my brain that it just kind of calmed me. Yeah. Oh, this is so good.
1: Did (laughs) you just dive right into the musician we're going to talk about? No. Or do you you warm up with some other jazz? What was your first, uh, what was that record you put on?
0: So, not going to be any spoilers, because I'm going to say what it is, and it's already going to be all over social media and that sort of thing. But I recorded another jazz episode before this one, an interview with one of our favorite jazz singers of all time. That's right. So I got to start there. Yes. And you have not gotten to hear it yet, but emily braden has a new album that's going to come out sometime within the next couple months nice and Sven my god it is (laughs) it's ridiculous when that drops we're gonna do a full episode on it it's awesome I, i was so blown away but that's how i started getting into jazz and i just kind of picked some old favorites like joe williams is right behind me who i've always obsessed over and will probably be my next one but what about you how did you start
1: like I've I've always got some jazz coming in and out of my week so I haven't really ever stepped too far away from it I know for sure like I've got some Coltrane that's almost always on Mm. fairly regular rotation kids don't really get into it that much bebop is it's not repetitive enough for the kids to really get into my kids just love anything that's just the same two lines over and over you know uh, like yeah. any any <laughs> any good kindergarten age kids young yep. children, yeah that and then I was always really into the funky side of jazz, so like uh, Herbie Hancock kind of stuff, even some like the fusion things, the later Miles Davis kind of stuff. I was gonna say kind um, of the
0: stuff that Miles Davis pushed to the forefront and the. 70s and the yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. And then, of course, like Chuck Mangione's kind of borderline jazz, <laughs> kind of mainstream pop. He kind of tried to break out into a pop, sort of, but it's hard to do with it. you play a flugelhorn. We're gonna have to
0: do <laughs> an episode on Chuck Mangione because I think you've brought him up more than any other artist on this podcast. Have I really? You've mentioned Chuck Mangione so many times, he's a magical <laughs> man. I mean,
1: the guy was like featured on King of the Hill, like the animated show. Oh, he's awesome. It, it is the weirdest person to talk about and think about. He's a great musician. Yeah, hell yeah. But I feel like he often gets left out of the jazz conversations. Oh, yeah.
0: That's how we started getting into it. I also, I'm starting to try to pick up my instrument chops again, because I put down mm-hmm. instruments for a long time, and I, I kind of had to give it up for a while, because I had some mental things going on. And now I'm really full force trying to get back to where i was and get better and i find that the best way to do that for me once or twice a week one of the things i'll do besides just scales and dinking around is i'll turn on jazz albums and just try to jam along with them yeah i never felt as confident as i do on instruments as when i'm starting to really feel good about where i am in jazz
1: yeah I think a lot of people are really scared of the genre, both yes. listening to it and also playing jazz. I think at first it seems really intimidating, but I think once you get familiar with jazz concepts and how the music evolves and is always moving, there's like a safety and comfort in that because you can't play a wrong note in jazz. Yes. Like I will argue yep. that to the grave. And anything that you don't like, you're only a half step away from something that will sound better. Once you realize that as a musician, or even as a listener, you start to really realize how free and safe jazz can be. And just fun. fun. I think a
0: lot of people have the wrong impression about jazz. And I think a lot of people just don't like it, which to each their own. There are times where I totally understand it. But I think you're right. I think there is a comfort in jazz that people don't see, especially for musicians that maybe aren't as confident it is incredibly intimidating yeah when you first look at it you know once you- i
1: compare it to like wine or scotch there's people that are like yeah. really snobby about those beverages and will make everyone else feel like shit and then you're you're scared to go to like a restaurant where there's a sommelier and then order the wrong damn wine that doesn't go with food you just ordered yeah and look like an idiot yeah. i think a lot of people feel like that about jazz I don't know any of this. They're just playing all these random notes. Like, how do I even begin to understand and get into this? And, and then there's people that understand it and they're like, ah, oh, it's, it's music for musicians or it's, uh, intellectual music. And, and I or think
0: it's bullshit, but they're just playing whatever the hell they're, they want.
1: They're totally bullshitting. I mean, yeah. lot, yes, there's an incredible amount of theory and precision and technique and, I'm not trying to downplay that, but at its core, jazz is supposed to just be about goofing off and having fun, I think, really, yep. um, and breaking Absolutely. all the rules.
0: So, As you can tell, we're very excited to talk about this. Let's do the most important part of the night first. Yeah. I am going to start, I am taking it a little bit light tonight because I was freaking sick all week but i have got it looks like water it does doesn't it no this is actually when you think going to a a jazz lounge i mean what are you gonna order oh if it's not
1: scotch i'm I'm ordering a gin and tonic
0: oh well it's a martini it's a martini it's just vodka and vermouth i don't do those i've got (laughs)
1: it that's just vodka (laughs) so and this
0: is actually a really weak martini it is shaken not stirred Everybody says, you know, oh, James Bond did it wrong. You're supposed to stir it. This is my theory on why James Bond did shake and not stir in martinis that I, for some reason, nobody talks about. And I think it's fairly obvious. Yeah. James Bond had to have his wits at the forefront at all times, right? Yeah. So what you do is you make people think you're drinking a strong martini when actually you're drinking a shaken, diluted, ah. lightened martini. I look like I'm getting drunk, but I'm, I'm staying on gotcha. point.
1: I thought you were going to go somewhere with the temperature and how shaking in a shaker, with, it gets super chill. I like that theory. I'm going with it.
0: Thank you. Yes. Yeah,
1: just I'm, I'm totally James Bond then because <laughs> that's how I like my martinis.
0: What are you drinking tonight?
1: Mostly water, but after a two-week hiatus. Two and a half week. I'm returning back to some beer. Do you
0: get to have a beer
1: tonight? I get to have a beer tonight. I'm still on the Hot Valley stash train, so tonight it is a stash delica I couldn't find anything that screamed jazz appropriate. I found, like, some Prohibition-style ale <laughs> that was really gross and... <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm not a cocktail per I don't have anything in the house to make a decent cocktail. That's what I got.
0: Who cares? Yeah, it's good. It is. Speaking of Sven's little drink hiatus and taking it easy, I've gotten multiple Emails. I've gotten messages making sure that my brother Sven here is doing okay. I'm alive. He is. He is. (laughs) I'm here. He's taking a step back from the pod, maybe permanently. He's not quitting. He is stuck with me. Sorry, Sven, but if I can't talk to you about music, (laughs) then there's no point. But yeah, probably three or four week rotation. We'll see how it goes. He's always going to be here, just taking a step back.
1: I'm really touched that there are people that are asking that are curious. It's... Really not a humongous deal. I just um, had a a lot going on in my life and ran into some medical concerns, which um, are probably long overdue. I'll just say like anyone listening, don't go 18 years without going to a doctor and getting checked up because yeah. <laughs> step one, self-care is important. But when you let problems build up, they get worse and then new problems creep in.
0: And that's always going to happen at the time of your life when you are most busy and most stressful. Absolutely. If you're not and, leading up to it taking care of yourself. And
1: yeah, a good stress management strategy is something that I'm I'm needing to learn. And also I'm one of the people that's guilty of self-medicating liberally, very liberally. <laughs> so had to learn to step back from that as well. So there's just a lot of things in my life that I, I am taking a moment to just step back from, analyze, and prioritize. Families coming first. So it's kind of starting there and then kind of rebuilding everything back around that like david said you'll hear my voice a little bit less i'll always be around damn straight. i absolutely love talking about music and as much as i i need a break it's also just sad um my my weekend yeah. nights we, we record these typically on the weekends and that's kind of been a routine for a while and it is just such a part of my life that it feels kind of weird now not doing it every weekend it does I've got to get a little bit better and balance out work and life and everything. And Yeah,
0: we need you to get yeah. better. It was always fun, but forced fun once a week <laughs> is... Still, for a lot of people, it's too much. Uh, Podcasting is insane. It really
1: is. Oh, yeah. There's a lot that goes into it.
0: A lot of research, a lot of editing, a lot of, you know, you're giving up your Friday nights every week permanently, and we're not making any money. If we do make money, it's not going to be for at least another couple of years. But other than that, (laughs) (laughs) I'm just glad that you're doing okay. It's good to see you. It's good to have a drink with you and talk jazz i'm excited absolutely let's go ahead and take a break we'll be right back and we will get into our first jazz artist deep dive
1: yes yes Welcome back, and this week for this Jazz Deep Dive, I wanted to talk to DL all about somebody who most of us don't probably realize that we've been listening to a lot of our lives, um, which, which I'll probably wrap up at the end. I'll circle back to that, but one of my favorite, and probably I feel... One of the most underrated jazz musicians and jazz pianists uh, is Johnny Costa. I'm so excited for this. I know so little about him and love
0: him so much.
1: Yeah. He's got a really interesting story. And I think we'd all know a whole lot more about him. And he would be a lot more at the forefront had he not made some... What must have been sort of difficult, Mm -hmm. but he, he stepped back from his recording career kind of as it was taking off.
0: He's one of those artists that you could tell just followed his heart. That sounds really cheesy. Absolutely. He didn't give a shit about money. He didn't give a shit about fame. He didn't give a shit about notoriety. He just followed his heart. That's the only way I can put it.
1: He did, and he was a sensitive man, Mm. and he was a caring man, and you you hear it once you start to get familiar with his music. You kind of hear his personality he plays some blazing fast piano he always has these tender soft moments and the way that he mixes different genres within jazz it's 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 pretty incredible i've
0: rarely heard a jazz pianist that plays as furious as him that sounds as gentle
1: right yes And I think, you know, a lot of that comes from, he lived in a really tiny town in Pennsylvania growing up, and there wasn't a lot of music. So this was um, in like the 40s, Mm -hmm. late 30s, 40s. Gotcha. There was no radio. The only music would be somebody singing or playing music. That's the only exposure that they had in their town. He tells a story I read. One day, like a a door-to-door music salesman knocked on his parents' house door and had this violin said hey you he said it was mom hey why don't you take this violin see if your kid wants to be a musician and he couldn't make a sound out of it with a bow so he would turn it on a side and, and play it like a guitar he would <laughs> strum the violin like it was a guitar <laughs> but quickly burnt out on that didn't like it didn't like how it sounded he couldn't didn't feel like he could do anything on it and he knew somebody i think it was like his cousin or a friend or something that, that played accordion so he thought well I'll, do, I'll try that so he'd mess around with this and finally got his dad Now, this is the incredible thing. Talk about supportive parents. His dad sold his house to buy Johnny Costa an accordion. What? So you better believe that Johnny became damn good at the fucking accordion. Holy crap. Because if I had to sell my house to get my kids something, they're going to be a professional... Wow, um, that's crazy Huge, right? Mm-hmm. So how did he go from accordion to this amazing jazz pianist? It really was because he was embarrassed Because this, this accordion was, it was a giant concert accordion And he was playing, he learned classical music on this And... He started playing, I think, when he was five. And by the time he got to high school, he was really good. But this thing was huge, and his dad would have to carry it for him. And his dad would show up in like grubby work clothes to like his high school recital. And Johnny would feel embarrassed because all the girls that he liked would see his dad carrying this accordion up to the stage for him and everything in his grubby work clothes. Yeah, wasn't
0: his dad a coal miner or something like that? Yeah,
1: in in yeah, yeah in Pennsylvania, you better Pennsylvania probably... coal
0: miner. Like you um, can't you can't write that.
1: Yeah. So really, like you think about selling the house to get him a accordion. It's even I mean, more that, that, talk yeah. about that sacrifice, right? Yeah.
0: It's not like he was in a job where, hey, we'll have more money in a month, you know, don't worry about it.
1: Yeah, we'll go buy another house. Yeah. We'll just you know I mean that's
0: another thing I saw too about him learning the accordion, did you know that he had a little Jimi Hendrix in him? Ah. He was left handed. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's right. That's right. You know where that's most right.
0: people would learn where to put do the push buttons in the other he had to learn it the opposite way. He'd
1: flip it. Yeah. Now thinking about that, that really explains why why naturally he might have had a one up in the style that he ended up playing on piano. Yeah, <laughs> even though you have to be pretty ambidextrous to play a piano, I think if you come in left hand strong, yeah. As a right-handed person, my left was always the weak, and I can't walk a bass line while playing chords and melody. <laughs> I'm not a piano player like that. I tried, and it. I. I don't know. I'm not. I'm not that. So yeah, high school, Johnny gets embarrassed, doesn't like having his dad lugging this thing around, looks around, sees, cool, every school's got pianos laying around. Yeah. Why don't I play pianos? Because they're always around. That's his story about how he then started learning piano.
0: I wonder how much guilt was there, leaving the accordion to go to the <laughs> piano, It's like, oh, my dad just sold his house for this. No big deal.
1: Maybe dad can trade the <laughs> accordion for another house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it must have been one damn expensive accordion, though, because you figure... And he doesn't talk about how he practiced. So, like, how the hell did he practice at home? Like, maybe they traded the accordion for uh, a piano. Pianos are pricey now. They had to have been more expensive than accordion back then. Or maybe he just practiced at school. But he got hooked up with some good teachers. He learned a lot. Didn't he learn at uh, Carnegie? Yeah, he eventually got two degrees. Two music degrees from Carnegie. One of which was an education he he did. And he, he joined the Army, 90th Division, landed in Normandy on D-Day. Jesus, really? He the, and, he, and he was at D-Day. Oh, my God. <laughs> where he got crazy sick and eventually got sent home to the U.S. where he was hospitalized for a year. He was bedridden. They wouldn't let him move for a year. Whatever the illness he had, it affected his lungs and all the stuff. If he'd move, it would be really bad. So he couldn't play music for a year. And I can't imagine how painful that would be when you finally found the instrument that you're made for and you're learning and you're and then you get sent off to war and then you come back and then now you're stuck in a hospital for a year.
0: With everything that you saw in frickin' Normandy on D-Day? Yeah,
1: I, I can't imagine the feeling. But apparently the day that he got released from the hospital, he touched a piano and it all came back to him his words he he touched the piano and it was like a gift from god i think was his words like he could play and that's when yeah he really took off he got two degrees he started playing everywhere uh, meeting lots of awesome people there's other jazz legends that then he started coming into contact with i think the most notable as a piano player being art tatum Anyone that knows jazz piano, there's always that Art Tatum, you love him, but then there's also Oscar Peterson. There's always like this, like, who's the best, who's the top, who's the, you know.
0: Did you know that before studying for this, did you know that people called Johnny Costa the white Art Tatum?
1: It makes sense because he made a name for himself imitating Art Tatum. (laughs) He did, and he did it really, really, really well, actually, (laughs) like, uh, the day he met Art Tatum, There was a newspaper reporter that wanted to introduce the two of them together, and Johnny was playing a gig at some club where they were supposed to meet, and Art Tatum walks into the club, immediately says, oh, great, you've got my record on. Nice touch. (laughs) It was Johnny playing in the background the whole time.
0: The lore is that Tatum gave him that nickname himself. Tatum was the one that was like, that's the white Art Tatum. Because he can do it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and anyone that knows either Johnny or Art, you talk about fast piano. These guys play an entire band, but with <sighs> one instrument. They're playing everything. Bass yeah. lines, horn section, their piano parts, the melody, everything.
0: I can't think of any other piano players that can have such a full, warm, depth of chord while simultaneously arpeggiating. Yeah. And
1: improvising on top of a melody. So they've got the melody but they're not just playing the melody. They're playing so many embellishments and... Yes. Yeah. Dancing all around the melody. It doesn't
0: make any sense when you hear it. You find it on YouTube and you watch them play. It still doesn't make any sense. Mm -mm.
1: If you're a piano player and you're going to choose someone to emulate, damn. You pick Art Tatum. That's... That's... (laughs) I don't know, man. Talk about setting a really high bar. Mm -hmm. I remember a story about Art Tatum. When Art Tatum first heard jazz, like big band jazz, he didn't realize that there was a bunch of different people playing a bunch of different instruments. So he thought when he sat down to try to play songs on the piano that he had to play all the different instrument parts. So he taught himself to play that. He taught himself to play everything in the big band all on the piano. And that's where... His style wow. came from, and so Johnny, of course, emulating art, just did the same thing.
0: Man, that's
1: so. And I think cool. that's the the one thing, though. Once he realized he was the white Art Tatum, getting that nickname, and also having so many people compare him, I think he realized that, like, hey, I I need my own sound. I've got to yeah. be Johnny Costa. And I think it took some work, but what he finally came out with. And what you can hear in his later works, by the time he started recording, he recorded his first album in 1955. It was called Amazing Johnny Costa Mm -hmm. on Savoy LP. And they re-released it in 89 with a better name called Johnny Costa's (laughs) Neighborhood. Let's not forget, he started out classically trained.
0: I was going to ask you that because that's one thing that I didn't didn't do a lot of research because I wanted you to literally teach me so on the spot I could kind of find things out and be intrigued. I didn't research how he was trained. I mean, if you listen to his music, there is a lot of classical influence. He loved Bach.
1: Bach and Mozart. Okay. Or excuse me, Bach and Chopin. I hear a lot of Chopin etudes in some of the things that he does and like variations on melodies and things the way Chopin would do. And then Bach, Johnny compared what Bach would do rhythmically to what he does in jazz. That mathematical precision, subdividing, everything is done in like these super tight, tiny 16th note, 32nd note runs. He's so fast, Mm -hmm. but he still can hit the melody while playing all these other notes in between the melody. His brain is constantly thinking in the smallest increment within that piece of music. And he just fills every little gap with all these notes. One thing that I love about him, if you do a quick Spotify or YouTube search, he was, to me, one of the first people to do mashups. <laughs> he would mash up Bach <laughs> with Gershwin. Really? Oh, it was great. Purposely, he would... Oh, yeah, yeah, Not yeah. just a
0: sound. He would literally say, I'm going to take these two songs and blend them together.
1: Uh, one thing that he lo- I noticed, if you listen to his recordings, he would start on one song, and somewhere in that song, he would lead into another song. And the next thing you know, he would end playing a completely different, like, even if it's jazz standards, he'll start on My Funny Valentine, and by the end of it, he's playing Autumn Leaves or something like that. Gotcha. And he did that with classical music and jazz. He would start playing a classical piece and then go right into, like, Rhapsody in Blue. You brought it up.
0: I just have to mention it because I listened while I was preparing for this with you, you doing more of the research on yeah. this one. I just listened to a few. Yeah, yeah. And the last one I listened to was his rendition of My Funny Valentine. Ooh. That's the most beautiful version of it I've ever heard in my right? life. That's one of the prettiest songs I've ever heard in my life.
1: I absolutely And I love how he always honors the original melody. If you wrote a melody, he will keep it intact. But sometimes he dances around it and puts so much stuff around it that you almost lose the melody you, unless you're mm-hmm. paying attention. I, that's what's one of the things that I love about him is that he keeps me paying attention so that I can pick the melody line out of all the other notes that he'll cram into the same bar. I know that there's people that this kind of music would annoy the hell out of them. I had a roommate probably like 18, 20 years ago that would hate this kind of jazz piano. I know it's not for everyone, but I am just baffled and infatuated and blown away just listening to how he can take something keep the original yeah and build on top of it and since he could do all that himself he never really did big band stuff he never joined a big band he always played small groups or solo Mm -hmm. which is also my preference never been in big band i think i've made some bold comments to you about my feelings. On yeah,
0: you have We're, big band. I think they might be addressed when we talk about our next artist. So.
1: <laughs> Maybe <huh?
0: laughs>
1: um, Johnny finds his groove. He finally figures out who he is musically. Starts recording. Starts touring. He's on the road. He's playing music, and he decides it's not the life that he likes. Right. He, mm-hmm. his family and his friends are really important to him. Yeah. And so, right as his career's taking off. He steps back and decides, I'm not gonna travel anymore. I'm just gonna stay in Pittsburgh. Yeah. I'll play music in Pittsburgh. He returns to Pittsburgh. He worked for a TV station as a music director.
0: Yeah, for a while. Yeah. A pretty long time. KDK didn't
1: he? TV. And he composed organ and piano music for a bunch of different shows. He did that for quite a while. And when that wrapped up, he met a man named Fred Rogers. <laughs> This, to me, is the magical moment that makes Johnny Costa, as amazing as he already is, my hero. He meets Fred Rogers, and Fred is looking for someone to direct and write music for Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood.
0: Everybody knows it. Maybe you haven't watched it or you're too young for it, uh, some of you listeners, but everybody knows I, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood.
1: I would Yeah, anyone that's not familiar, go check it out. You can youtube them there's as cheesy as some of it seems now because it was produced so long ago it's a really clever show anyway so the thing i appreciate about both fred rogers and johnny costa is neither of them felt the need to dumb things down for kids yes yes they didn't change their vocabulary they didn't change their musical vocabulary They didn't Um,
0: shy away from subjects that everybody else, especially back then, didn't talk to kids about the things. Uh, that I think that was the whole point of Fred Rogers wanting to have the show. There are kids out there that aren't being talked about these real life experiences like divorce and death and things like that.
1: How to deal with your feelings, how to Mm -hmm. manage the setbacks and both the good things and the bad things in life. When Johnny met Fred and they started talking, Fred asked him like, hey, would you come do this? It sounds like Johnny was really hesitant at first because it's like, I'm a jazzer. I, I play all this stuff. I don't want to go play kids music. Yeah. And Fred was like, no, I'm coming to you because I don't want someone to play kids music. I want you. Oh, this is so awesome. I want you. I want you to do what you do. And she's really? So I don't have to, you know, play, I can play like I want to play and jazz everything up. And Fred didn't care. He was like, yeah, do it. And if you listen, if you pull up a bunch of episodes online and just quickly listen to the intro of every episode, they are all different. Yeah. I didn't realize this as a kid. He recorded live every episode and improvised. So even though it's the same, it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, it's the same song, it's played different every episode. Mm-hmm. That's the magic of jazz to me. It's so free that he can add or subtract or move things around, fill in with things you almost, like I said, you sometimes lose the melody a little bit, but I didn't complain as a kid. I don't know any kids that did complain. And I think that was something that I think he that didn't know it was going to
0: work. But so much to did. Fred Rogers' vision yeah. and to Costa's, I don't want to say bravery, but Costa's willingness it's to, a little
1: stubbornness to try this. Yeah yeah. 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 But it
0: speaks so much to them that Fred Rogers went to one of the best jazz pianists you're going to find and said, can you please do the music for this kid's show and just play this amazing." complex jazz for these kids yeah i completely agree as a kid i wasn't sitting there going what is this music kids are not that stupid right kids can like jazz it is a possible thing and it sounds so simple but the vision to think that back then or nowadays even yeah it's just amazing
1: we're all guilty of thinking kids are dumber than they are yeah like we need to alter their experience to tailor it to what we think they can handle when they can handle a lot more than, than we give them credit for. Yes. Good lesson to learn from Johnny and Fred. That's kind of where he ended his career. He continued with that show until um, he passed in 1996. And that kind of a legacy, <laughs> the kicker, like you said earlier, he didn't care about money. He didn't care about fame. When Fred pitched him the job and said, I want you to come work and make music for Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, I don't have a lot of money. And Johnny said, Well, what's your budget? What do you have? He says, Well, for the whole thing, I got five thousand dollars. And Johnny said, Well, you know what? That's exactly what I need to pay for my son's college tuition. I'll do it.
0: <laughs> oh, that's so, so cool. it, like
1: talk about paying it forward, right? Like his dad sold his house to get him an accordion. And here Johnny's like, Yeah. I'll do this show. I'll do the whole damn thing. Not one episode. We're talking, he did all the Mr. Rogers music. He did it for college tuition for his kid. Because of that, he's my hero. Sometimes you can actually find the music from Mr. Rogers Neighborhood online, YouTube, Spotify. I will listen to just that. I love the familiar tunes, but then hearing Johnny mess with them Mm -hmm. in so many different variations, so many different ways. It's cool to rediscover the same songs.
0: And look up Fred Rogers playing the piano, by the way. Oh, he that, was an amazing
1: musician as well. He ripped! He did. Yeah! He did. He was, he was awesome. Fred started the show doing the music himself. He had the versions of these songs, but Johnny came in and just took it to the next level. He, yeah. yeah.
0: He was awesome. He was very, very revered among other jazz artists. People loved him. It was Branford Marcellus. Yeah. At one point in an interview, he was talking about johnny costa and he said that mr rogers neighborhood was the best jazz show to ever air anywhere <laughs> hands down <laughs> That's, right and there was yeah. other stories of lore too the other one that i found and i wrote down was andre previn who's was this famous piano and composer he was conducting the pittsburgh symphony at the time and he was introduced to johnny costa in a lobby and in the midst of their conversation previn brought up mr rogers he says, there's this kids show on tv now where it's the greatest jazz piano i've ever heard have you heard this talking to johnny costa <laughs> not realizing that it's johnny costa the that johnny done is the, the pianist music. <laughs>
1: yeah oh man there's I so heard. many
0: good little lores
1: yeah. he, he's just such a humble man like i could totally see mm-hmm. how you would meet him and totally not realize i, I guess i don't know <laughs> and there's lots of interviews with him I, I listen to interviews with him his music reflects his personality i guess that's that's the only other thing i want to add like i feel like everything he puts into the piano keyboard comes straight from his soul and you're hearing johnny's personality now and not just art tatum
0: thank you for teaching me about johnny costa hey i'm gonna go listen to him now we're gonna take a break we're gonna be right back and we're gonna talk about our second artist of the evening
1: Mm, some good vibes
0: are back my turn the artist that i have decided to deep dive is lionel hampton lionel hampton before i get into this i want to cite a few articles a few websites britannica verve records jazz treasury playback university of idaho edu
1: of course
0: yep arts.gov and good old wikipedia All those sites, I'm citing you. Don't sue DL. Don't call me a plagiarizer. All right. Yeah. (laughs) So why I chose Lionel Hampton, one of the reasons is you heard in there that University of Idaho talks about him. So growing up with a jazz presence in Idaho, people of our age, Lionel Hampton was a name.
1: We really had like two Um, in Boise. We did. You got to pick, we did. kind of.
0: Both of whom were amazing. We are lucky.
1: I'm kind of kicking myself now for not talking Gene Harris, <laughs> and I talked Johnny Costa, <laughs> but I really don't regret it because Johnny's amazing. So is Gene Harris. Anyway. Gene
0: Harris will, will happen
1: someday. I will shut up and let you talk Lionel.
0: No, you're absolutely right. Growing up in Idaho, it was all about Gene Harris and Lionel Hampton. Gene Harris was more of a, he had found a home there and just loved it because Mm -hmm. honestly the Boise area and most of Idaho is just beautiful it's a great safe friendly place Lionel Hampton to be totally honest with you I don't know why he chose Idaho he didn't live here Maybe he, maybe he looked at a map and said, where is no one going to know anything about jazz and I need to teach these mofos? And just pointed on a map and Northern said, right Idaho. there. Yes. yes, let's go to Northern yeah. Idaho because that's the safest
1: <laughs> yes. place for a black musician. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, you can edit that out.
0: So he did a lot of works with the University of Idaho. It's got a really good jazz program and... Lionel Hampton used U of I they used each other I guess you could say to educate and it really grew uh, statewide a lot of programs done to teach jazz which was a big thing for Lionel Hampton in his later years which we'll get into so I grew up honestly and maybe that's the reason I chose Lionel Hampton because I grew up listening to way more Gene Harris Uh, like you said you kind of had two and I always went the other one me too that said though My grandpa, who was a big, big jazz guy, he didn't pick the music a lot. My grandma would always have like classical or NPR, that sort of thing going on. But when he would have things on, or we had a family cabin that he'd put on some light music, my favorite thing that he put on was a Lionel Hampton CD. There's just... The moods that Lionel Hampton set and the warmth that he created with his music. I, I've never heard anybody else it's do it. It's chill. It's so chill.
1: And cozy. I, he invented lounge music before people played lounge music.
0: He really did. And a lot of that is because of the instrument that he made famous, which famous. is the vibraphone. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I love about Lionel Hampton, because I'm a big sucker for background musicians. I'm a big sucker for people that feel that it is more important to make sure that the background is full than the Mm -hmm. people that are out front soloing. Don't get me wrong, Lionel Hampton had some of the greatest solos I've ever heard. His concentration song to song was that warmth, making that song full. And I think that's why he was drawn so much to the vibraphone. Just listen to any jazz song without a vibraphone and then go and listen to one with one. The vibe is just completely different.
1: I think every time in a movie where they're like trying to show like a swanky kind of fancy lobby or something, (laughs) you will hear jazz music with a vibraphone. You can relax, but it's like luxurious.
0: That's very, that's well put. He was born in Louisville. He spent a little bit of time in Alabama, but most of his formative years he spent in the Midwest, Wisconsin and Illinois, which Illinois back then, that's breeding ground for jazz. He started music really, really young, as early as when he was nine or so. He was mostly raised by his grandma. His dad actually went missing in action during World War I, and it kind of Messed his mom up for very legitimate reasons, so I think his Damn. grandma did most of raising him. I say most of it because he moved to Cali when he was fifteen years old to pursue his music career <laughs> as one would yeah. at, 15, Damn. at fifteen as the kid, he played a lot of the xylophone, so it 's not really a surprise that he ended up going back to the xylophone, but before he did that, when he moved to Cali and he was pursuing his career, he was doing percussion. Mm. Uh, he learned from, which is crazy. I looked it up like three and um, three different websites. I was like, there's no way this is true. But he moved at 15 to California and started learning percussion from Jimmy Bertrand, Ooh. who if you, if you know who Jimmy Bertrand is, he played with all of the early gods, you know, like Erskine Tates and Louis Armstrong and all of them. So yeah, he like, moves at 15 years old. I guess I'll take drums from, you know, this how guy. How do you get
1: hooked up with that? I don't know. That's wow. But he did. That's Wow.
0: Yeah. And it makes sense because go find videos of him on the drums. He's amazing. And he's so fast. He is so fast on the drums. Yeah. Which I think translates well to the vibraphone and the xylophone and oh, all those yeah. things.
1: Those are all percussion instruments, so. Exactly.
0: Back then, everything in these terms is incredibly hard. Moving to California at 15, dedicating your life to music, that's incredibly hard. He became a prominent name locally. At that point, it's really just hoping that you get to play with the right people or the right person hears yeah. you the lore here is that in 1930 hampton was doing mostly percussion with a couple permanent groups including louis armstrong's group we may need to do a deep dive on him because yeah he's a lesser known <laughs> jazz artist but. <laughs> but louis invited him to record with him and when they got to the studio, there was a vibraphone there. And Hampton told Louis, I know how to play it. And, and Armstrong flipped out. Yeah. As you would. And in that recording session that day, they recorded Memories of You and Shine. Oh. Yeah. It was the first jazz recordings ever to feature improvised vibraphone. And from that point on, that was his instrument.
1: <laughs> that was a whole new sound. So Holy those crap. are
0: probably two of the most famous vibraphone jazz recordings ever. And he did it. Yeah,
1: that was his first. That's crazy. Okay, so for everyone listening that, I don't know, I'm sorry if I'm dumbing this down for our audience, but if anyone doesn't know what a vibraphone is, it's like I think most people know what a xylophone is, right? Metal bars that you hit with mallets and there's little pipes underneath them that resonate to make the sound. A vibraphone's pretty much that, but there's a motor that spins these little baffles inside the pipes that make the sound go wah, wah 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 and they can control the speed of that, so you can make it make the vibrato sound as fast or slow as you'd like. A lot of the players play instead of just with one mallet in each hand, they will use multiple, two to three yeah. mallets in each hand, so you're you're able to play four to six notes at a time and how the hell they hold those sticks and keep track of where they're positioned and still play. I don't know. I've watched people do it. It looks like magic. It's voodoo. It's crazy. It's, witchcraft. it's crazy. It's nuts. That's what we're talking about.
0: And what's even crazier is that Lionel Hampton preferred. He had the ability to play you know double sticks per hand and he preferred single because he was so freaking fast so fast yeah i'm gonna play sunny side of the street 1947 new york city version i'm gonna play a little bit of it this was uh johnny hodges this is an early idea of how much the vibra warmed sound and also in this you're gonna hear lionel hampton singing who i love his voice it's this light almost timid yeah calm voice that I just, I really, really love.
2: Get your hat and get your coat, baby. Leave your worries on the doorstep. Just direct your feet on the sunny side of the street. Don't you hear that little pat and that happy tune at your doorstep? Life can be so sweet, only sunny. Of the street, I used to walk in the shade with those blues on furry. Now I'm not afraid, I'm not afraid. It's over, it's over. Badiadi, ladies, daddy.
0: And now if you have I a little bit of a feel baby. of what the vibraphone brings to ready. a jazz song. He had already made a name. Obviously, he had recorded with Louis Armstrong and a few others. So he had made his name around L.A. Word didn't spread. You know, he recorded with Louis Armstrong. But still, this is the 30s. People aren't Googling who's Louis Armstrong collaborating with on Spotify this week. Oh, cool. It's... You're right. So he was pretty big around L.A. in 36. And that is when Benny Goodman saw him play. Yeah. Benny Goodman immediately that night stole him. And this is how good Lionel Hampton was. Benny Goodman had a trio. Back then, that is standard for jazz. You have a bassist, you have a piano player, you have a drummer. Maybe it's a trumpet player or something like that, but you have a trio. Benny was pretty, he was a great guy, but he was pretty strict about that sort of thing. He immediately saw a vibraphonist, which is an odd instrument, and said, we are now a quartet. And so he became part of the Benny Goodman Quartet for four years, which, by the way, was the first interracial jazz group. Ooh. And this is the Benny Goodman Quartet. So it was Benny Goodman. It was Teddy Wilson, who, if you don't know, is probably the most famous piano player to come out of the big band. Let's talk about era.
1: super group here. You're about to rattle off.
0: Yes. And then Lionel Hampton. Wow. And then Sven, do you know who their drummer was? Tell me. Nobody big, just Gene Krupa. Just
1: Gene Krupa, the guy that invented the whole floor tom thing. Yes. <laughs> just him.
0: That was the Benny Goodman Quartet. I'm not even kidding. Has there ever been a bigger super group
1: than that? <laughs> that I mean, woo, jazz is the one genre I think you might find some pretty close competitors, but that's... God, that is...
0: Could you imagine seeing that?
1: Just being in a room, watching them play <laughs> yes. like on a stage somewhere? Yeah.
0: Yes. And so during that time, they became, of course, they were famous. They were the best jazz band there was back then. In '38, Benny Goodman had his famous Carnegie Hall concert, which Lionel Hampton was a part of, which is regarded as one of the best jazz shows in history. During this time, he recorded with Coleman Hawkins, Benny Carter, Nat Cole. He was Dang. massive. Those names, you know, Benny Carter, Nat King Cole, they were... You don't get any bigger than yeah. that in jazz. Probably ever, you don't get I mean, any You're pushing than like that. that.
1: That's like popular um, music crossover there, too. Like, those are some names that I think most people know, even if you're not a jazz enthusiast.
0: Yeah, everybody knows who Nat Cole was. You better. If you don't know who Nat Cole was... And you've got to know his daughter. I mean, come on.
1: Like, if you don't know him, you had to have heard <laughs> Natalie.
0: Yes. At this time, he was big enough to start his own band, which he did. He left the Goodman Quartet in 40, and he started his own big band. <laughs> his big band had a lot of great musicians come in and out of it. Dexter Gordon, Clifford Brown, Fats Navarro, Johnny Griffin, Charles Mingus, Art Farmer, Clark Terry, Cat Anderson... <laughs> west montgomery dinah washington joe williams betty carter like huge oh and some girl named aretha franklin oh just i don't we'll have to to look her up i don't know (laughs) but what he did with his big band which was very a very smart of him and b was very awesome of him was he constantly toured the globe and he would always recycle young talent Mm. In the friendliest way possible, it was a scratch my back, I scratch yours. Because A, you play with Lionel Hampton as a young kid. It's going to be cheap. You're not going to make that much money. You're young. But you got Lionel Hampton's band on your resume, you're set as a musician. You're going to be fine, you know, in three or four years, you're going to be doing great as a session instrument or whatever it is you want to do tons of people came from his band and became leaders in their own right. And his band actually was the longest established orchestra in jazz history. That I didn't know. Yeah. He played with Quincy Jones, all these people. When he started his own band in 40, big bands had been a thing for a while. Before that, big bands were much more of a synchronized, here's the music on the Mm -hmm. sheet. This is very pretty. And I think that's the kind of big band that you maybe have a problem with. Yes.
1: (laughs) Yes. That's exactly what I'm talking about. That is, to me, (laughs) the the best example of the worst. I think I've talked some shit about Glenn Miller plenty of times, not just to you. Every time I hear In the Mood, I want to hang myself. I'm sorry.
0: (laughs) Yeah, we all know... Is that what it is? Do you think that it's kind of structuring jazz? What is it about it that drives you nuts a little bit? Too many
1: people. You just talked about the trio. You just talked about the trio. I still believe a trio is the magic number for communicating within your group while you're playing. There's so much magic that can happen. When you only have three people, you can really pay attention to what each person is doing and you can talk using your instrument to them. And I love listening to trios because as a listener, I like trying to pick those things out. What's the song and what are the inside jokes, the little conversations happening within the piece? And once you start finding those, it gets Mm -hmm. addictive to try to find more or or get in on the joke. There's a whole other thing to listen to than just the, the song that they're playing. And you can't do that in a big band.
0: That's true. No big band is it's it's an orchestra. It's an orchestra.
1: It's an orchestra. Yeah, and I've you're played not, in them. Yeah, I was a saxophone player. I've played alto and tenor in in several big bands, and it's a really okay. It's a cool experience because the sound is huge. I'll give you that. It's very, yeah, it's great to dance to. I mean, it's a wall of sound. That's enjoyable, but it's not as personal to me when it comes to jazz. I like those small, intimate, personal. You know.
0: Oh, I get it. This big band was way more how do i explain it there were freaking not riots but people went nuts at these shows this was like rock stars before rock stars yeah this was when the band leaders were pouring sweat the cab calloways and and that sort of thing lionel was so energetic and dancing around he's loud and everybody's going nuts and they're doing solos and stuff like that so it's big band but it's not big band yeah it's this loose kind of thing and people were going nuts at the shows he was also such a good piano player and if you have not seen his I'm going to play a portion of a song called Wiz and the Wiz right now Mm. and when it's done I'm going to give you a little fact about it That was a portion of Wizen in the Wiz. That is Lionel Hampton on the piano. That is some of the fastest soloing I've heard. And you know what Lionel's doing right there because he was a vibraphonist? He is playing with his index fingers.
1: Oh, <laughs> wow. He is. He's playing the piano like a vibraphone. Yes. Which makes sense, because the bars on a vibraphone are laid out like the keys on a piano. Yeah.
0: But damn, that's insane. The piano solo you just heard was him with two fingers. Just it's the funniest thing. And that's why that's nuts. the piano is plunked so hard. It almost has this like xylophone sound to it. Yeah.
1: It's so awesome.
0: Yeah. I love that so much.
1: You were just talking about like, um, how Lionel would just be pouring sweat. These concerts would just be these huge energy mm-hmm. events, right? It just reminds me of the contribution that made to music future. Yes. Like after that. We wouldn't have the James Browns and all of Motown probably Wouldn't have been the same Motown without that type of Lionel Hampton's big band, right? The stuff that came out of what he was doing, it gets mirrored later on when you see James Brown just working up a sweat with his band and, you know, not just singing, he's dancing, he's directing, he could see him signaling to people in the band. Absolutely. It all poured right out of that. Huge
0: way paver for sure. Like I said, as he got older, he concentrated on education. He was just a good person. He put a lot of his concentration on music education, low-income housing. He was just a really good dude.
1: He was a humanitarian. Yes. I mean, lots of... He was always
0: going to his own jazz festivals and just (laughs) meeting people and, hey, how's it going, sort of guy. I just really love his music. He had moods. If you're up at a cabin in the winter and you're just wanting something soft and cozy, he's perfect. If you're wanting some insane swing jazz, it's his album Hamp and Gets." He did an album with Stan Getz in like 55 Ooh, I think jeez they just go off the entire album it's like yeah. nothing I've ever heard and just his musicianship I'll play one more right now it's called stompology it's from 1937 so it's just a young guy I'll play that right now just so you know how amazing of a musician he was He was an amazing musician. He was a good person. He was a mood setter. Everything that you could want out of a musician, that's what he was. Also, he died at 94 yes. in 2002. Yes, he played into All his
1: 90s. Way. I remember seeing him. It was either 2000 or 2001 at the Lionel Hampton Jazz Festival at University of Idaho in Moscow, Idaho. That was where I proposed to Diana Craw. Got oh. shot there. <laughs> Same stage, but Lionel. When Lionel took the stage, I remember seeing this tiny, frail man being. He had a couple people, one on each arm, kind of helping him get up to the stage, picking up the mallets and kind of helping him get his hands around him. Yeah, he didn't have the speed at 92 or however old he was in 2000. But damn, he still had the energy. You could feel it there. And what he when he took a solo, it was beautiful. It was on point, And it was clever. Like, you know, I'm going to make every single one count. Yeah. I hope that I can be like that when I'm 90-something. Like, even when I'm 70-something, I hope I, I have those kind of wits and that musicianship still in me. He's an amazing person. He is.
0: So, Johnny Costa and Lionel Hampton. That was fun, Sven.
1: Yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> We're definitely
0: going to have to do a few of these a year because that there's just something about getting to listen to these guys. I had a lot of fun with that one. And you
1: know what? I- I am bummed. I'm just gonna flash back to the episode I miss with Miss Emily Braden. Shout out to her because since we're we're talking jazz, like she was she was huge influence on me. We played music together. We were in groups together. Listening to her helped me. I played saxophone at the time. It was my primary instrument. But mm-hmm. listening to her voice, oh my God, it had it made an impact on me.
0: The way I put it in the episode, which. Coming up next week, Emily Braden.
1: Emily Braden.
0: My interview with her. The way I put it in that episode is back then when we were all playing jazz together, which by the way, you know what sucked? I was trying to sing. <laughs> on the same stage as emily Brayton. <laughs> that's
1: why i was so glad i was an instrumentalist i remember there was a song called black coffee that was her feature and i had to take a solo on it i'm like i'm so glad that i am not singing and then i get to blow into the saxophone instead
0: the way i put it in that episode is she was just a comet that we were all watching from earth yeah and we knew that she was just gonna freaking take off yeah yeah so that's next week emily braden it was an amazing talk i had with her i loved it so much it is such an intriguing look into somebody she had a dream of being a jazz vocalist which sorry to say but yeah if that's your dream that's going to be tough living right but she's she's done it man she's been in canada new york since she left school the work that it takes, the night-to-night look at being yeah. a, a musician yeah. like that.
1: I can't wait to hear it. Definitely
0: tune in next week. Sven, it was so good to see you, my man. Absolutely. You too. We'll be in the same room again together soon. com at pod. If you can give us a rating and review on iTunes, we'd appreciate it. yeah. Uh, apparently those
1: Preferably a good one Mean a
0: lot for iTunes
1: But if we're shit You can let us know that too Just If you think we suck I Hey suppose. Shoot us that
0: one star Everybody have a good night Stay safe Stay cool daddy-o
1: Stay cool. Cats are all cool Yeah, sure yeah. <laughs>